Be free for God. I have a need of such clearance as the Savior effected in the temple of Jerusalem, a riddance of clutter of what is secondary that blocks the way to the all-important central emptiness which is filled with the presence of God alone. We are four weeks into the season of Lent, and if you're new to us, Lent is simply a season of sober and humble, many times painful reflection, and it's a, a season of honesty. And the theme that we're walking in this Lent is the theme, Hug Your Cactus. And if you missed what that means, and if you're not sure what Hug Your Cactus means, I encourage you to go back to week one and watch that. We explain it in full, and there's a great clip in there for you to watch. It comes from a phrase Robert Downey Jr. says at an award ceremony in Hollywood. Uh, a friend this week uh, told me, said, wow, your messages late have been pretty hot. How's the church responding? And I laughed and said, I don't think anyone's hugging me. And uh, you know, sometimes when the pastor points out sin, uh, he becomes the prickly cactus. And so uh, if I'm your cactus, hug me. I have a simple sermon today, and it should be pretty short. You're welcome. It's a message that I didn't initially plan on sharing in this series. Uh, but this week, I really sensed the Lord speaking to me personally about it. And afterwards, after I processed it for me, not planning on sharing it with anybody, I sensed that it would actually be good to share it with you and pass along. And I felt God speaking to me more clearly about this passage than the one that I had planned on uh, several weeks ago. Um, most likely, no major light bulbs will go off for you. And there's probably not a lot of note taken to be had today. But I believe the word at least for me, is a significant word. And I am praying that God might meet you and speak to you in it. We're going to talk about our need for space. Isn't that un uncomfortable? <laughs> Did you feel that like, wait, why do you stop talking? Oh, how we need space. We have a need for clearing. We have a need for cleansing. And, you know, we're about the one year mark of this pandemic. And it's been kind of, um, 2020 was really like a year of Lent a year of going without, a year of fasting, a year of weeping, a year of looking in the mirror, a year of seeing all the cacti in our lives and in our culture and in our society and in our world. It's been a year of clearing. It's been a year of removing things that aren't necessary for, for many. And it's not been a comfortable year. But it's been a year of cleansing, if we could approach it that way. Now, we're going to read uh, two passages of Scripture. The first will be John chapter 2, uh, when Jesus cleanses the temple for the very first time. And then we'll read Mark 11, when Jesus cleanses the temple for the second time. He did that twice. So if you have a Bible, 
um, will be in John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, if you jump to Mark's gospel, chapter 11, this is the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. In verse 15, Mark writes, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Hear the word of our Lord. This cleansing of the temple happened twice. Once at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after he turned water into wine. I mean, imagine what the disciples were thinking. They're following a rabbi who can do this cool party trick, turning water into wine. The popularity they would have. They'd be invited to every party. And then right after, he goes and cleanses the temple, making it awkward for everybody. But that's not the only time Jesus did it, as we read in Mark. He does it again at the end of his ministry, the day after the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Jesus' earthly ministry is like bookended by these two acts, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. Now, honestly, I don't think much about these events, and I wonder if you do. They tend to go against the meek and mild, white, hippie image of Jesus we often have. John Eldridge paints this scene beautifully in a book called Beautiful Outlaw. And I want to read a page or two from it for you. And this is uh, no doubt the best description I've ever found of what was happening when Jesus cleared the temple in John 2. In two verses, he empties the temple, a report that reads like the crack of a bullwhip. But take the action slowly. First, Jesus observes the shenanigans, and it makes him furious. Then he takes the time to make a weapon. Where did he get these cords? That required some looking around. Having found them, he had the patience and forethought to weave them together effectively to make a usable whip. He knows what it takes to move large, sedentary cattle and self-righteous profiteers. There's time enough here to cool off if this is merely an outburst of anger 
But no, this is a planned and sustained aggression, particularly unsettling for pacifists. Following the flow of the text, it says, He then used that whip to drive all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. The livestock would have been kept in some sort of corral. They would have been standing for hours, languid, sleepy. An angry man flying upon them with a whip would ignite panic, mass panic. Animals feed upon one another's fear in seconds. Picture cattle and sheep running for their lives, crashing down the corrals, their hooves sliding frantically on the tiles, making them even more desperate. We have a stampede here. It then says he poured out the coins of the money changers and sent their tables tumbling. The money changers, think men who make their living through extortion, are reported to have been sitting at those tables. How easy is it to move carefully and quickly from a sitting position while removing your legs from the table that is being overturned in front of you? More panic. Meanwhile, the coins... Meanwhile, the coins. Jesus doesn't permit them to gather their money and move off in an orderly fashion. He dumps the coins, scatters them. This is explosive. You probably had a small handful of change fall off a counter. They burst in every direction like a jar of marbles. Imagine the chaos of hundreds and hundreds of coins erupting off the stone floors. Now, layer all this together. The animals would have panicked in every direction, their keepers running after them, shouting, trying to get control, which only incinerates more panic. Add the greedy money changers scrambling around on the ground, gasping and grasping at their coins. Imagine the noise, bellowing of frightened livestock mingled with the crashing of corrals, tables, coins, and the angry shouts of the incense men. Over this, the shouts of Jesus. It is absolute pandemonium. Someone screaming fire in a casino would not be far from the reality. This is a fierce, intentional man to be sure. But his passions are neither reckless nor momentary. In the midst of the fury, there is the touching tenderness toward the doves. These were in cages. If Christ were to hurl them to the floor as he did the tables, the birds, innocent as, well, doves, they would be hurt. So he commands them to be removed. Could a small, unintimidating figure accomplish such a sustained riot? To pull off driving all of them out of the temple would require more than a few seconds in repeated blows. This is a sustained assault. If a frail man with a meek voice tried this, he'd be logjammed by the sheer number and inertia of the traffic. Jesus is a locomotive, a juggernaut. For all practical purposes here, he is the bull in the china shop. This is our Jesus. This is a startling picture of Jesus, and it should shock us. And we should ask, why is Jesus so angry? And why does he do this twice? I think one of the reasons we would say in our language right now is that there is a giant cactus in the temple. Now, for starters, the priest had made worship a business instead of a ministry. They made church a business instead of ministry. 
They made lucrative profits off of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who were seeking God. And to worship, you needed a sacrifice, and to buy the animals for your sacrifice, you needed the correct currency. So they set up an exchange area, hence the money changers, that's what they're there for, and they charged ridiculous exchange rates. And these temple entrepreneurs were cheating their customers or the worshipers. Serious worship had become casual consumerism for both parties. The Bible tells us the temple is being cleansed, and we have to ask, well, how is it dirty? People are flooding in. They're engaging. Is that bad? A new market is being tapped, the Gentiles. Is that bad? Money is being generated. There's jobs being created in the temple. Is that bad? What's wrong with all this? Why does it need to be cleansed? Why is it dirty? I I think maybe one answer to that question would be that Commerce had become greater than communion. The commerce of the temple and the commerce of worship had become greater than communing with the living God. Their worship was dull and routine, and it was led by worldly men whose motives for serving was power and wealth not the way of the kingdom. They were false shepherds who were exploiting the people of God. And, and Jesus called the temple, which by, by definition is a system, he called this system and he called the temple a really striking phrase I've never thought much about until recently. He called it a den of robbers. Let that sink in. Jesus walked into the temple And he called it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. Have you thought about what it means to be a den of robbers? A den is a safe hiding place to rest. Jesus walks into the house of God and confronts it for becoming a safe place for thieves who steal. Not worshipers. It's not a safe place for worshipers. It's a safe place for for thieves. It would become a safe place for wolves not sheep. Do we have any examples of this, unfortunately? Instead of being his father's house where people prayed, it had become someone else's house, a den, where people were the prey. Jesus walks in and says, this should be a place to pray They had made it a place where the people were prey. Nice little play on words. Commerce had become greater than communion. Unfortunately, sometimes it seems not much has changed in this arena. Weekly, we can find headlines and examples of where God's house has become a den of robbers. And while that is often true, it's not the point or focus for today's message. Before we stand up to the system of religion and start throwing stones at the temple, we should first note that the New Testament says, we are a temple. St. Paul tells the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
And in, in Ephesians, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are a temple for God's presence. So am I, and we are together. We have the hope of glory Christ in me, as the scriptures say. God's presence now lives in me, and God's presence now lives in you. And we are each filled with his Holy Spirit, and we carry his presence into the world. And together, God joins us together. He gathers us together to be a dwelling place for his spirit. That's one reason why we're called the gathering. We are literally the gathering of God's presence in downtown San Antonio and Midtown. It's one of the reasons why our name is what it is. It's not to be cute. It's literally, we are the gathering of God's presence. So let's drag this into today and into our lives personally. In the temple of your life, whether that's your mind or your body, your heart, your soul, in the temple of your life, are there things that have been set up that get in the way of communion with God? In the temple of your life, in your mind, or in your body, in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit, are there things that have been set up that get in the way of communion with God? Prayer can be dangerous. And there's a dangerous prayer that I only recommend you pray if you mean it. And I, I'm not being glib, I'm serious here. It, it, the prayer goes like this. It's real simple. Jesus, I give you permission to turn the tables in my heart. Do not pray that prayer unless you're prepared to have Jesus answer it. I began with a simple poem entitled, Be Free for God, and I want to read it again slowly. Perhaps it will take on a new meaning for you and reveal to you where you need clearance and where you need space in your life with God. I have a need of such clearance as the Savior affected in the temple of Jerusalem, a riddance of clutter of what is secondary that blocks the way to the all-important central emptiness which is filled with the presence of God alone. Twice in Jesus' ministry, he got angry and didn't sin. Fire filled his eyes and his heart because the sacred space where we find God's presence and his forgiveness was lost. I'd love to ask you, what is that secondary thing in your life, the thing that may be blocking the way to experiencing more of God? Where have you put things, tables, animals, 
money changers or whatever up in your life? Where have other people, that's a great one, where have other people set these up? Where have, where have you allowed the expectations of other people to come in and set up tables in your life that prohibit you from meeting the wonderful presence and forgiveness and love of God? And would you be courageous enough to say, Jesus, I give you permission to flip all of the barriers in my life that get in the way. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, help us to see how much we lose when we lose you. Oh, we confess that our perspective on eternity and what's really important often gets distorted when things come in and crowd the space that is meant to be a space of communion with you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would search our hearts, search our minds, search our lives, and reveal to us any way that isn't pleasing to you, reveal to us all of the ways other people or we ourselves have set up tables and obstacles. Reveal to us where we have made other things greater than communion with you. Help us to have the courage to not just see the cactus or even to name the cactus, but Lord, help us to face the cactus, to hug the cactus, and to then surrender that cactus with all of its pain to you. We need your deliverance, Lord. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.